1: Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team
2: at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening. This is indeed the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Thanks very much to Peter and Marissa just now for the Doing Time show. We've got a great show lined up for you tonight. Uh, And if you remember this phrase When the sleeping giant of the church awakes Then we will move mountains This phrase has lingered with us for two years Back then BZE asked religious leaders What they thought about climate action Now Pope Francis has come out with a serious letter To the world to decarbonise There is a rabbinical declaration And an Islamic declaration And the Dalai Lama has weighed in too They speak collectively to billions worldwide about the impacts of climate change on the poorest people and also on vulnerable species. It's great. If religious people swell the number of citizens demanding an orderly shutting down of the coal, oil and gas which is fueling climate disruption... Vivian tonight will talk to Thea Omerod towards the end of the program about the Australian religious response to climate change. We will also hear about the Islamic Declaration. But first... Magnificent news from Port Augusta. A good news story, folks. Vivian will interview the local member, Dan Van holst Palakan. He is from the Liberal Party and he has been behind the community-led project to make Port Augusta the first place in Australia where we build a concentrated solar thermal power plant with storage. At the time of this interview, Alinta's coal-fired power plant was closing down and the Lee Creek coal mine was closing Dan was most worried about the sudden increase in unemployment When he had worked so hard to make an orderly transition It didn't look like a linter would build the solar plant However, breaking news Last week, the federal member for Port Augusta, Rowan Ramsey Said that the company's solar reserve has made a bid To build solar thermal with storage at Port Augusta Listeners, you can take action by calling on the federal government and the South Australian st- state government to back Solar Reserve's bid to build solar thermal in Port Augusta. It's a huge step forward and a testament to the campaign backed by people from all across Australia that Solar Reserve is prepared to build such a big project at Port Augusta. Check out Repower Port Augusta for f- further details. But now, he's Dan Van Holst-Pelican. Dan Van Holst-Pelican represents Port
1: Augusta in the South Australian Parliament. He's a Shadow Minister for State Development, Resources and Energy and Small Business, as well as a few other things. He's been kind enough to speak to us before, and today we're going to talk about good news from um, South Australia. So how are you, Dan?
3: Going well, Vivian. Thank you very much for having me on your program.
1: Oh, it's a great pleasure. Look, we've heard before from the Clean Energy Finance Corporation about this pilot project done in Port Augusta using solar power to grow vegetables. I'd like you to tell us how that's coming along.
3: Well It's actually coming along incredibly well. Uh, we are now about eight years in, into this project, sort of from first conception. It's a uh, it's a German company, I think, based out of London, that uh, looked at the technology and decided that Port Augusta would be a, a really good place for it to uh, to be trialled, as, as you said. And what they were essentially looking for is relatively cheap land uh, close to seawater. With a a, a stable, reliable, uh, you know, government uh, and a moderate climate and and a high level of sunshine, so we're very, very fortunate in Port Augusta to uh, to to be able to offer all of those things. And and as you said, they did run a pilot plant for about three years, and they are at the moment uh, smack in the middle of, of actually constructing the real thing, which includes 20 hectares of greenhouse.
1: Yeah, well, listeners, you can look this up. It's called SunDrop, and there's a little video on YouTube on the um, Internet that you can look that up. They show you the extent of it. And I believe that they are building a 100-metre-high solar power tower with 11,000 stands around it, each holding three heliostats to receive the solar power. Why do they need that much power?
3: Well, it's actually not so much about creating electricity, Vivian. It, it, they do create a little bit of, of electricity uh, through a steam turbine, but that's not sort of their their, their highest priority. The, the, the biggest part of it, as I understand, is actually um, creating some electricity, but also using heated water to warm the greenhouses in summer. You can imagine in our climate, uh, it gets very, very hot in summer, um, you know forty degrees is, is a fairly common temperature and they can cool the greenhouse cool the greenhouse which they can do fairly effectively with shading and with opening louvers and and creating drafts and that sort of thing during our, our fairly hot summer daytime climate but of course in winter uh, at port augusta you know between zero and five degrees is a pretty common uh, overnight low and they need to be able to keep the greenhouses warm as well so they're using heated water that's come from the 23,000 mirrors into their uh, solar thermal heating process as, as, as a as a way of heating the uh, the greenhouses up as well keeping in mind that what they're really creating at the end of all of this is a is a is a tightly tightly controlled tomato growing factory and you know really you know every hour of every day is absolutely vital for them to get their efficiency as as high as possible and so they do need to be able to heat and cool the greenhouses.
1: What about the water? Where does the water come from?
3: Well they actually take water in from the upper Spencer Gulf and they desalinate it uh, using the electricity from the the solar thermal process and so the, the water is desalinated, Then nutrients are added to it, and that water, as well as being used for uh, you know, warming the greenhouses when necessary, yeah. is actually used for irrigation and in fact fertigation as well for the plants.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. And I believe it wouldn't be very high in uh, pesticide or anything because it's a closed system, so you wouldn't have insects really getting a chance to get in there.
3: Yeah, look, look I, I can't say that they never would, and of course I'm not the expert no, on that no. anyway, but they, they, it's a, it's a fairly, uh, reliable climate in Port Augusta anyway without too many insects. It's fairly yeah. dry, it's fairly arid, so, uh, and it's, and it's, uh, you know, not humid, so, so we're pretty right for that. Yeah. Um, they'll have to deal with that as it comes. But but you're quite correct to say that, look, it's it's not nearly as difficult here as it would be in many other places.
1: Well, I mean, we'll talk about the international implications for a moment, but you're as Minister or Shadow for the uh, State Development. It just reminded me... Um, they're going to build a visitor centre there. And it reminded me as a child, I was taken up to the Snowy Mountain scheme. And it was a great thing, you know, to be shown this magnificent thing that we'd built, you know. And I remember being terribly impressed. And I thought, that's what I think we need nowadays with the renewable energy. We need some big projects to show people. And this is how it's done. And, um, I wonder what other advantages or what advantages you see for your electorate there in Port Augusta. What, what advantages will this bring
3: you? Well, look, there, there are lots of them, uh, and you're quite right. You know, as, as children, we all saw things that impressed us, and I think it's wonderful uh, to have, you know, renewable energy becoming one of those things that could impress not only children but adults as well. Uh, you, just having 20 hectares of greenhouse in itself is actually a fairly impressive sight. Add to that... Twenty-three thousand mirrors to reflect the sun to a hundred and fifteen meter tall uh, solar thermal tower. Mm. It is all actually pretty impressive stuff. But in terms of the broader electorate, it's it's a new business that's very important. Sundrop Farms have a ten year contract with Coles to supply fifteen thousand tons of tomatoes every year. Uh, so that's you know that's a very significant industry. They're going to employ between one hundred and sixty and one hundred and eighty people uh, in our region. Which, as you may know, is uh, is incredibly important at the moment because we're we're losing a lot of jobs, unfortunately. Um, and, and I, I hope uh, also that that it will be a, a shining example of the combination of uh, of renewable energy and and high tech growing practices uh, that could be a, you know, a shining example for the rest of the world. And certainly, Sundrop Farms have said that all of the people that they bring on for for this new project will be trained in what was their pilot plant but perhaps more importantly if it works in port augusta they'd like to roll it out in other parts of the world and they will use port augusta as their training base for other developments in other parts of
1: the world Oh, i was was hoping you'd say something like that i didn't know that from just reading about it apparently the ceo of sundrop has just recently been in singapore and he gave a talk that you know this company's been given a few accolades and in Singapore he told about the project being built in any arid region near a coastline and he said they would feed a lot of people in North Africa, Middle East, you know, anywhere where they could do this installation. I wondered if, yeah, the training workers like an export of expertise this would be quite a boost for south australia wouldn't it
3: i think it's absolutely outstanding and it's a boost for south australia just with regard to the jobs and, and recognition for our skills but it's it's a boost boost for a clean green responsible you know planet as well uh you know the sorts of things that uh that Seemed, you know, to be sort of science fiction only a couple of decades ago, are actually real life and genuinely happening now, and and, and that's only going to escalate. Uh, we 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 were going to find smarter, better, more humane ways to to feed the people of, of the planet, and, and I you know I couldn't be happier that that what Sundrop Farms is doing in Port Augusta is is right at the the cutting edge of that.
1: Yeah, well look. Thank you very much for talking about that. Now, I'd like to move to another subject in your electorate. The uh, CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions, uh, Stephen Bygraves, just recently wrote an article in Renew Economy, and it it was titled, Let's Get On With Solar Thermal at Port Augusta. And I read that Alinta has announced the closure of its Northern and Playford power stations and the Lee Creek uh, coal mine that was uh, feeding into that and there was a feasibility study into uh, concentrated solar thermal power at Port Augusta, which was that big project that BZE was really very enthusiastic. And I know a lot of people in uh, Port Augusta especially, but South Australia generally were very keen to see that happen. So could you report on how that is going?
3: Yeah, look, I'd be pleased to. And, and uh, it's not all good news, I have to say, Vivian. You're quite right that BZE, uh, was was one of the uh, great catalysts for... Uh, starting a movement of, of, of interest and, and, genuine motivation locally in Port Augusta towards solar thermal and the, the local community embraced that really strongly. Where we, where we were, were heading and where we all hoped to be was that, um, we could essentially have a steady transition, uh, from coal to solar thermal. Now, for many people a steady transition wasn't fast enough, um, but, you, you know, I think it, from my perspective at least it was important for a few reasons because it, it would give solar thermal the best advantage to build up steadily over time as well. Plus we have a very important uh, employment issue, you know, the, the coal-fired power station at Port Augusta was by far the most significant employer. Um, now, what's actually happened is that Alinta, that that ran the power, runs the power station and the coal mine, have said that they're going to close both of them. So, you know, from an environmental perspective, that's a very good thing. From a local employment uh, economy and also social perspective, it's a very, very difficult challenge. Four hundred and thirty-eight direct employees, plus contractors, plus other flow-on. Um, uh, you know, businesses and, and, and sort of economic connection will lose their jobs starting in November at Lee Creek and in March here in Port Augusta. So that, that, that is going to be very difficult and, and hard to plan around. Uh, and it also unfortunately means that the, the steady transition from one to the other is uh, is not going to happen. Now, that could mean that we could uh, move very, very quickly, much more quickly than we'd hoped towards solar thermal Overlaying that, of course, is the fact that there was a feasibility study jointly funded by the federal government, the state government, and Alinta, being done. Alinta, uh, who who were overseeing, they weren't doing it, but they mm. had the lead role in overseeing the uh, the feasibility study, has announced that it has found that it is actually economically unfeasible to uh, to build and operate a solar thermal power plant in mm. Port Augusta. So that's bad news. But Vivian, there is some good news because I think, to be frank, nobody expected that solar thermal on its own, without some sort of taxpayer support, no, would be no. feasible. And there is also a, a really tremendous opportunity at the moment in that Solar Reserve, an American company, have put a proposal to the ACT government, which it currently has a tender out for 50 megawatts of solar thermal, or sorry, 50 megawatts of renewable energy. Yeah. Um, For the ACT that it could build a solar thermal plant in Port Augusta to supply that. Now, there will be a gap between the most that the ACT government will pay for the electricity and the least that solar thermal, sorry, solar reserve say that they can produce it using solar thermal in Port Augusta. And we're all hopeful. that the gap will not be insurmountable and that state and federal governments together uh, could provide funding to, to meet that gap and there's, there are different ways that that could happen so that's, that's really uh, where we're heading at the moment with regard to trying to make this happen
1: Are there any discussions about that, are they? Yes. Okay, alright, well thank you for that update about that I, you know, I have heard that Australia is the only continent not investing in concentrated solar power you know, like baseload power from a because uh, you're so close to the grid there you know that's why it's ideal at Port Augusta I remember yes. researching it all before and it, you're close to the grid you set up market. for it just uh, change uh, the source the space yeah mm-hmm. and uh, Chile and Spain, USA they've already got these things up and running yep. um, and I wonder if there's momentum in the community gathering behind this project or is upheaval deflated
3: Um, Look, there's two sides to that. There is no doubt still momentum in the community. The the community support for a solar thermal power station here is is, uh, as strong as it ever has been. What's difficult, of course, is that uh, in Port Augusta alone, we're just about to lose, you know, 185 direct jobs. I I Mm. suspect, you know, well in excess of 300 jobs by the time you bring in contractors and other people whose employment Mm. is, is there because of the power station. That, I have to say, is the more immediate concern at the moment is, is uh, you know, how are we going to replace those incomes into those households? so that those people don't have to move away. So right now, Vivian, that's, uh, that is the highest priority issue, and we're all desperately hoping that solar thermal with government support can be part of the, the solution to that problem.
1: Yeah, well, look, just last night, Beyond Zero Emissions, had all these people, Ross Garneau and Tim Buckley, all these sort of financial economists sort of people, just hard-headed people talking about... Um, Launch Australia being a superpower, but you know, making all these value-added goods with the resource we've got—the renewable energy resource. Yes, right. And I wondered at the federal level, we've had a change of prime minister, and he has asked us to be more agile and to embrace change. In fact, he launched one of the Beyond Zero reports—the earliest one in 2010. He spoke so glowingly about it. So I know he's across all of that, and I wonder if. if this is starting to play out in the States, you know, is the direct action policy starting to change its shape a little bit and, you know, where are the obstacles or is it working?
3: Um, well, look, uh, yes, I think it is. And of course, I can't speak for the Prime Minister, but, uh, you know, I'm sure all of us understand that he's, he's, he's very uh, embracing of, of, of all of this technology and direction. I think he's probably also being cautious with regard to not wanting to completely change the whole direction of the whole government ship uh, and, and make a few mistakes along the way I, I would like to think that while uh you know a few days after becoming prime minister you know malcolm turnbull did say look there's, there's no change in any of these things just yet that as time goes on we will see uh more support from the federal government and i think it's only fair that that You know, the the government as a whole, including all of the public service that works on these things, has time to to decide exactly what they want to do, but, you know, as I said, I can't speak for him, but I'd, I would certainly hope that in the next few months, uh, we will see some very positive announcements coming from the federal government which I hope will support South Australia, yeah. which has an incredibly uh, difficult economic challenge ahead of it. Our, our state's finances are, are in a very poor way at the oh, moment. And but
1: you've got uh, so many skills there. We do. And you've got I mean, these wonderful resources, uh, we've, well, we know renewable energy resources. So,
3: And, and we, we, I think, need to see renewable energy as, uh, as an economic generator uh, that, that can help us uh, Im- improve where we are in South Australia at the moment
1: Great, alright, well look, I hope you'll let me know if there's good news on that front and thank we'll you. interview you again, but thank you for speaking to us today.
3: Oh, my pleasure, thank you Vivian
1: Thank you. That was a uh, Member of Parliament in uh, South Australia, representing Port Augusta, his name is Dan Van holst Pelican. Thank you Dan
3: My pleasure
0: Still fighting forward is
4: ours Climate action Climate justice In December, the governments of 190 countries arrive in Paris to discuss a new global agreement to stop dangerous climate change. Tricia joins their discussions with a series of special interviews and analysis, starting Monday, November 16th till 28th, and continuing into December, from 8 a.m. till 8.30 a.m., weekdays and on Saturdays, the warnings have been issued. If we don't hold the line on emissions... Climate change will be irreversible. Stay tuned as three CR breakfast programs join the global conversation.
2: You're on the BZD show. and next interview is about the Adani coal project. We'll hear from Ellen Roberts in the Mackay Conservation Group. The Mackay Conservation Group took this project to court and won But Greg Hunt has approved the mine again What will happen next? Ellen Robert
1: Um, I've invited Ellen Roberts from the Mackay Conservation Group To give us an update on the coal project that they recently took to court We are talking about the Adani Carmichael mine in the Galilee Basin So hello Ellen Hi, how are you going? I'm good, thank you Could you start by telling us why you are objecting to this new coal project, that both the Labor and the Liberal government really want to go ahead, it seems?
5: Well, I mean, we have a number of concerns about it, as you can imagine. I mean, um, obviously the climate change impacts of what would be Australia's biggest coal mine and one of the largest in the world um, are considerable, and that was really a, a central part of our federal court challenge. There's also regional environmental impacts in terms of the mine using billions of litres of water a year, destroying um, habitat, particularly important habitat for, for certain endangered species. You know, And then also, of course, what the impacts of associated coal infrastructure would be. So having a rail line going from the mine up to Abbott Point, cutting through... Um, grazing land, and then also, of course, what it means to be building a huge coal port in the Great Barrier Reef World Heritage Area.
1: What would that mean in terms of ships and so on? Well, we did
5: launch a separate court challenge last year which was essentially focusing on uh, the dredging that would be required to facilitate the port development, so that's obviously scraping up the the bottom of the seafloor and, then, and at, that, at that time dumping it further out to the ocean, and then that, um, you know, impacts on corals and seagrasses. And you're talking about uh, a marine environment that's already under a lot of stress.
1: Yeah. Mm. Well, I believe that um, hundreds of humpback whales sort of go there for the winter, and I just saw a map with the the conflict, obviously, for marine life that's migratory. Mm.
5: Well, there's a lot of humpback whales. They don't exactly know where they calf, but one I... um, Some evidence seems to be pointing actually to carving a bit further south here off Mackay. And there's been a call for having um, no-go zones for ships because there's been some reported incidents of collisions between humpback whales and and large coal ships. And in fact, we had an incident just here recently in Mackay with a young humpback whale being caught in the propeller of of a tug, actually it was. Mm. Um, So... Yeah, I mean it, there's also obviously those kind of um, ship strike incidents but also some things that you know, are less well known but still as important such as you know, ships making a lot of noise even when they're anchored uh, and that impacting on not only mammals but also fish as
1: well. Right. Well, look, I was looking on the map to see exactly where this was and I was wondering why it was called the Carmichael Mine and then I found the Carmichael River and then Lake Galilee. So I'm starting to dream about what this land is like. Could you describe the region for us and you know, the, what the conservation group does there?
5: Well, um, we're based in Mackay, which is a coastal town in central Queensland, and, but we are a regional group and so our area extends um, out west. So um, it's Western Queensland. It's the the ecosystem is called the Desert Uplands and, you know, a lot of that area was cleared in the 1990s um, when there was a lot of land clearing going on throughout Queensland I did read a statistic that said that there was more more um, forest being cleared in Queensland than there was in the Amazon at various points a couple of decades mm. ago. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, any places that have remnant vegetation are really, really important. Um, and the Moray Down Station, where the Carmichael Mine would be located, is one where, for example, you can see blocks of hundreds of black throated finches, um, and these finches have disappeared from almost 80% of the rest of their range. They used to be quite common throughout Queensland, and essentially as a result of land practices
1: that
5: have dwindled right down to a couple of patches around Townsville, but then a real stronghold um, at the Carmichael mine itself. And so, um, you know, if that mine goes ahead, then it's most likely that that bird will be pushed to extinction.
1: Well, you know, Beyond Zero Emissions does a lot of different reports, but one of the ones we did on land management pointed out that thing about land clearing, you know, in order to stop the carbon emissions, just stop land clearing and start reforesting as a carbon sink. Do you, um, conservation groups like yourself, are they, do they have plans if we could stop all of this Galilee Basin being mined, you know, for revegetation of that land and, you know, trying to make it more <laughs> bring back the fertility so that it's actually not so desertic.
5: Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, land management is a massive issue, um, and you know, we're calling for things like, for example, there was a mine proposed for the South Galilee Basin that was going to be on one of the a nature refuge in the area, the Bimblebox Nature Refuge. That there was a film made about.
1: Oh, I remember that. And, yes.
5: Yeah, and so you know, we obviously need to be protecting those areas of habitat that are still intact. Um, and doing what we can to restore, but you have, you know, also remember that this is these areas that are going to be subject to climate change and increasingly severe droughts, like you know, similar to the one that we're experiencing mm. at the moment. So, you know, I think what's disheartening is that as we're facing the prospect of climate change, we do really need to do something about that, obviously, because you know, regeneration efforts will be limited by the amount of available water resources,
1: mm. of course. Well, look, everybody cheered when, all well, the people I know cheered when your group took that project to the High Court. Oh, what did you say? It was the High Court, Federal the Court. Federal Court, yeah. And we, at that time, I interviewed um, someone from the EDO. We also spoke to Law Professor Samantha Hepburn and um, Adrian Burragaba from the Aboriginal landholders at that area. Um, but I'd like to know the story from your point of view, you know, how did you build up a case like that. I imagine it was a huge amount of work and how does a local conservation group actually do that?
5: Essentially under Australia's environment laws at a national level, at a federal level there are you only have limited appeal rights, unfortunately, something that's called judicial review which is really about identifying errors in the process identifying errors of law that the, that the Federal Environment Minister um, made and so we had three grounds to our challenge. The first one that I mentioned is the way that he approached climate change which was that you know, he basically was saying if it's coal that's being burned overseas, it's not something that I have to assess. It's not relevant to working out what the environmental impacts of this mine are. Whereas we'd say the opposite is the case that to approve Australia's biggest coal mine and yet completely ignore its contribution to global climate change is just, you know, a dereliction of your duty as environment minister. Mm. Um, the other one was about Adani's environmental record. You know, they've got a, t- a very poor record in India and yet they provided this self-assessment to the federal government said, oh, you know, it's fine for us to be doing this. The third one was, which was the one that we ended up winning on, was the conservation advices. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we were very lucky. We were assisted not only by Environment Defender's Office New South Wales but also um, GetUp, who provided funding for the case, you know, as well as support from you know lots of individuals um, from around Australia.
1: So. Yeah. Well, a lot of people listening probably would have contributed to that and were very, are very keen to see a good outcome in this. And I, th- I was amazed that the um, court really didn't touch on the climate impact or the environmental record of the company, Adani. But I wondered if it was the media. I don't know the court wouldn't be influenced by the media, but the public mind was just totally picked up by that skink and the ornamental snake so do you think that the media sort of trivializes a thing like this they kept saying oh it's just a glitch or it's just a loophole and now indeed the environment minister has reapproved the mine so do you think there's some media consp- um, media kind of collaborating in this way that climate change is not really the key issue
5: well, I mean, it does look like the fact, like, in order to win a court challenge, we had three grounds for our challenge. You only need to win on one mm. in order to be successful. So, And we never went to trial. This is one thing that I think really was never um, explained properly. We never mm. went, and, it, and this is, it. like, there was such a backlash against the decision. But what happened was that Greg Hunt conceded. He agreed with us. Mm. You know, we never went. We never went to trial on the climate change issue because we didn't need to. Mm. The climate, the conservation advice, the, the, which was the ornamental snake and the yakka skink, was the grounds on which we was which we won the case. So, I mean, it's not a. It's, the media didn't didn't misrepresent that at all. It's true. We never went to trial on climate change.
6: All right.
1: Also, the key question now is: Are you going to challenge again, or do you think any other groups will challenge? They've got about a month to get back there.
5: I, don't, I certainly think that a lot lots of people are thinking about it I mean um, we it's true that we need to get good case law in Australia on climate change and we simply don't have that at the moment we have courts who interpret the environment laws very conservatively and give ministers a lot of power to approve projects so I mean yeah I think I think a lot of people are looking at it very closely obviously because because of the impacts of the carmichael mine itself but also because of the desperate need to have you know, good precedence on how these projects are to be assessed and how the issue of climate change is to be approached because at the moment in Australia it's just a very narrow conception. It's only if those emissions are generated here. If they're generated elsewhere then it's considered to be completely irrelevant which, Mm. you know, for a global environment issue like climate change just simply makes no sense.
1: Well, as we're moving towards the Paris talks, you know, the conference in November, December, a lot of people are saying we're going to be a laughing stock if we... Go there with such low targets, and also just announcing that we're opening more mines, uh, all to benefit the en- energy poor people of the rest of the world. I mean, this is going to be laughable, isn't it, to advance thinking other nations?
5: Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's you know it's not only um, you know that Australia wants to make a quick buck out of coal, but it's also you know India is really at a crossroads in terms of its development of its energy sector, and you know if you just take a company like Adani, for example, that they Obviously, have <clears throat> invested heavily in coal, but they're also announcing all these solar projects and looking to invest in solar as well. And there's a lot of interest in solar development throughout India. So India stands at a, at a crossroads um, in terms of how it's going to develop its energy sector. And for Australia to be pushing, you know, its export coal onto a country like India and potentially locking it in to decades or longer of coal-fired power at this particular point, you know, that's simply immoral in my view. You know, countries like Australia should be doing everything that they can to encourage, you know, countries like India to develop their energy sectors in in ways that Australia hasn't Mm. and should. And so for Australia to be saying, you know, and maintaining those ridiculous energy poverty arguments that simply don't reflect the actual economics of energy... Um, you know, I think is deeply problematic.
1: Yes, well, Naomi Klein said that we we need to have a sort of Marshall Plan for the Earth, which would mean a huge transfer of renewable energy expertise and hardware and help to the countries who need to leapfrog the fossil fuel era to get, you know, the Indians need to have electricity in villages and decentralised energy like that, but it can come from solar. She she just thinks that we should do that, and beyond zero emissions, he launched a report last night about exactly how Australia could do that, and we had um, economist Tim Buckley who said that he thought, well, Adani's project's not going to stand up, they're not getting the finance from the banks, Mm. and if Josh Frydenberg sort of sounds gung-ho, he also is saying, well, we're not going to focus on this project if it can't stand on its own two feet and, and the economists say, well, it can't stand on its own two feet without government assistance. So That's right, yes. So it seems in summary that Adani doesn't have the finance, it doesn't have the approval of the uh, one-gun Jagalinga people, it doesn't have social licence, it doesn't, um, you know, doesn't have the support of citizens groups and conservation groups. What more pressure do you think we should apply or do you think it matters how much more pressure we apply or should we just wait for it to fall over?
5: Well I mean I think it is disappointing that the finance sector is showing itself to be more progressive in a lot of ways than state or federal governments in Australia who are still pushing for coal Um, you know I think obviously you know we have a federal election coming up and even though the Labor Party is you know that people should be really thinking about climate change and the environment when they vote obviously is something um, important for us all to think about the should... Labor Party refuses to be drawn on the question of coal exports, and no. you know, time. I think that they that they stepped up, but I mean, from a finance perspective, generally large fossil fuel projects in Australia have um, what, the support of one of the four major banks, and um, a number of them. The Commonwealth Bank has indicated that they're not going to participate in the Darri project, mm. um, and but you know, the others haven't ruled it out, and they're all up to their necks in fossil fuel projects. And so that's something that we really need to shift is the Australian lending. And, you know, they've been much more reluctant, probably because they get a certain amount of political pressure, but they've been more reluctant to to rule out financing an Idani project. And I think if we can get some statements from the big institutions in Australia, as I say, who really do plough a lot of resources into fossil fuel. Thanks
1: very much, Ellen. We've been listening to Ellen Roberts from the Mackay Conservation Group, and she's been talking about the Adani mine that has been now given approval by the Federal Government.
2: Now we will switch from coal and renewables to how religious people are mobilising around the injustice of climate change and their demand in the billions to carbonise this earthly realm.
4: The key message... um of the uh, declaration that we've been uh, putting together in the last two or three days uh, is to mobilize the Muslim community worldwide and uh, get them to change their, their lifestyles and to uh, start an education process that will be ef- effective for uh,
0: both for the present
4: and, and the future
0: well. The importance of declaration is to tell the world, to tell the United Nations, to tell the world that Islam and Muslims are part of the solution, are involved in the salvation of the world and the salvation of the earth for our children and our grandchildren. We in Islamic Relief, we've been asked, why are you so uh, interested in climate change, Uh, being a humanitarian organization, the largest Muslim independent nonprofit in the world, working in 40 countries serving 10 million people every year? Well, our job is to save lives and to make lives better. If we do not save the earth, there will not be a place for lives to live, for human beings to live on. Uh, The United Nations tells us uh, that this year is the last year for mankind to save the earth, otherwise the changes are going to be irreversible, uh, very difficult to change, and we're going to be leaving much worse earth for our children and grandchildren, so... They are meeting this year in December in Paris. We are meeting now in August in Istanbul to send it to the world and to go there and say, we Muslims are with you. We are part of the solution. The 1.7 billion Muslims and Islamic Relief in particular, our great organization, we are going to promise all of you that we're going to work so hard in anywhere we where we have influence to make a difference and to help save the world climate change is
4: probably going to be the most pervasive challenge that the whole world is facing and Muslims are not immune to it we contribute 25 percent of the global population and we need to change behavior amongst that 25 percent it is going to be the driver of conflict migration and poverty and therefore a declaration from the Muslim community on climate change is absolutely crucial in creating the basis for behavior change amongst us, for dialogue with other faiths and other communities, and with an ability for Islam to speak with the clarity that the Qur'an has on all of these matters of climate change, environment and development. And so, the declaration is an elaborate way of calling all Muslims to action, and I would want to amplify that call for Muslims to join the battle against climate change and for a new reality for all creation in this world.
1: The Islamic Climate Declaration is a huge step towards our community around the world taking action on climate change. Islamic Relief Worldwide is calling on Muslims around the world to do whatever they can to mobilize their communities, to take action and to be a part of the global campaign and movement ahead of Paris. The Prophet said Allah has made the earth green and beautiful and he has appointed you as his stewards join Muslims for climate around the world as we call on world leaders to do more and to make firm commitments more than 1 billion Muslim around the globe already suffer from climate change their leaders need to know that these people need action as the Khalifa upon this earth this declaration
0: from our Muslim scholars on climate change is very important in trying to build that climate action for our Muslim Ummah.
1: And people from other faiths are going to support our Muslim brothers and sisters in trying to implement this climate action. Green faith are supporting this declaration of climate change from the Muslims for a better world.
0: The Lutheran World Federation very much welcomes this Islamic declaration on climate change and its timely publication a few months ahead of the decisive climate change conference that's going to happen in Paris at the end of the year. We receive with great interest the invitation of the declaration to strengthen interfaith collaboration on climate. Indeed we believe as LWF that religion is not a stumbling block, but a building block for a more sustainable, just and peaceful world. The ecological crisis is a spiritual crisis. It is signaling to us that we need to have spiritual evolution from egoism to altruism.
2: Young people are going to be most affected by the changing climate. We have to rise up and demand change for our own future and the future of the world.
1: Tonight we will talk to Thea Ormerod. She's the chair of the Australian Response to Climate Change. Ark is the name and we're sitting in the Town Hall Square in Sydney surrounded by jacaranda trees and two wonderful old sandstone buildings so it's a very pretty place but excuse the noise listeners because there's a lot of traffic as well I'm hoping we can look at the Pope's recent encyclical on ecology and climate and find out what people of faith have to offer, what new dimension religion might bring to climate action. So welcome Thea, how are you? Oh well thanks Yes, secular groups I think like 350.org and Greenpeace have done the heavy lifting so far, really, mm-hmm. as far as mobilizing people. But I, I always remember um, a show I did about two years ago and I interviewed the Reverend Alastair MacRae and he was then the uh, moderator of the Uniting Church and he said, look, when the sleeping giant of the church awakes, we will move mountains. And two years ago, it didn't look like the church was going to do any of the churches seem to be making statements about this. And I'd like to know how can religious leaders activate the billions of people who may not yet have been motivated by those secular groups, like, you know, they're not really worried about environmental concerns but they do belong to these faith traditions, so how can the religious leaders sort
6: of activate them to uh, radical action? That's the million dollar question, (laughs) but I I do tend to think that... Religious leaders need to actually begin to explicitly and quite publicly align themselves with people who are calling for an end to new coal mines and the expansion of coal minings to get beyond the general statements, in my view, anyway, and, and get actually in support of some of the more specific asks. Um, and ambitions and perhaps even um, being seen in public with those people who are taking a stand because it's actually a moral issue. We can no longer compartmentalise climate change as an environmental issue and say that that's to do with green groups and so on. This is a, a matter of life and death. It's a matter of justice for people in the Pacific islands in East Africa in Bangladesh who are looking at sea level rise and increasing floods and increasing cyclones we need to be standing alongside those people who are really many of them very worried and people in developing countries they don't they're not in denial about climate change it's right on their doorstep it's lapping on their doorstep so I think religious leaders need to get beyond being a bit timid and seeing it as, well, that's not really my thing um, because it's got to be everybody's thing and we're looking for leadership from those people. I think once the religious leaders get on board and not just in... In small numbers and the odd person here and there. But once we start seeing bishops and moderators and, you know, senior people actually uh, meeting with members of parliament, actually not just issuing broad statements, but actually making much more concrete stands on, you know, the Shenhua coal mine, you know, or fracking on the Darling Downs. We've got to see them... You know, having some courage to stand with those people who are most affected.
1: Right, well, we'll get to those people affected a bit later, but uh, you mentioned um, overseas countries who are the most affected, and recently I was in a, on a remote island just off the coast of East Timor and I wandered into a Catholic church to get out of the heat. It was a Saturday afternoon, and the local priest was there talking in a very animated way to a big audience. He was waving around a piece of paper, and later when we bumped into him, I asked him what he had been uh, reading to the people, and he said, oh, it's about the Pope's letter. We're going to get a letter. It was before see was published, but we are announcing that they were going to get a letter. He said, we're very excited. He is writing to us, and it's about climate, and we know about that, because we don't get enough water here we've got drought and he's written to us and so later when the book was published i read laudato si the pope's letter and i especially noticed his focus on the billions of people like that poor village people who you know are suffering climate change they know exactly what it looks like um and the pope um talked about billions of people who are not much mentioned in international discussions and he said that our, our conscience in the rich world has been numbed to those people and that we are, that they are collateral damage. Those were the Pope's words. I thought his encyclical was really modern. I mean, he just said they're collateral damage and we must hear both the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. So I'd like to ask you, Thea, how can we get more climate action that gives justice to those sorts of people?
6: Well, certainly we need to be giving more to the Green Climate Fund as a nation and as as a global community. Um, so far, the contributions to the Green Climate Fund have been very modest. Um, the pledges have, even the pledges, have been weak, and this is this actually undermines the whole climate negotiation process. Developing countries don't see us as fair Mm income unless we're prepared to actually support them with their mitigation efforts and actually help them with adaptation Um, so Pope Francis very clearly calls on wealthy countries to to not just see people in developing countries as somehow a nuisance because of their large populations and growing populations but they're human beings and they're the ones who are copying the frontline impacts of, of climate change. On, on the question of religious people getting into this issue and I think this justice element is what is the hook and it's something that's all of us have in common in the churches and in the different uh, faith traditions where we know that it's the ordinary neglected people who aren't wealthy, who aren't educated and yet um, important in their own right and have human dignity, they're the ones who are are suffering the most and that's a, a strong thing that holds us together. Okay. well, look, the Pope talks about an ecological
1: debt and he says the cost of technology transfers, technical assistance and financial resources that we should... You know, you mentioned the Green... um, What was it called? Green Climate Fund? Yes, the Green Climate Fund, but even on top of that, like, knowledge transfer from a country like Australia. um, uh, He says the cost of that would be low compared to the risks of climate change. And I'd like to know, how do you see this becoming a reality? The, you know, more in a practical way say nation to nation Australia's just cut its aid budget and our um, Josh Frydenberg has recently said that you know our coal exported to India is in fact very philanthropical to bring these people out of energy poverty completely missing the boat I think but how do you imagine this becoming a reality that we transfer expertise and um, and our wealth
6: to help them leapfrog the fossil era? Actually, people in developing countries want to use renewable energy. Some of them are actually aiming for 100% renewables in the next couple of years. Um, so there's a lot of motivation there, including in India and including in China. And I think it's a, it would be an act of good faith on our part to be interested in technology transfer to enable that leapfrogging Josh Breidenberg, not uh, criticising him personally but uh, he you know, he's really on the wrong track. He's reiterating the propaganda of the fossil fuel lobby when he says this is what poor countries need. They need it like they need a hole in the head because they're already choking on pollution from coal-fired power stations. A lot of areas uh, in India and in Africa There's no hope of setting up the grid infrastructure needed for coal-fired power. Uh, Renewable energy would be... um, It's in their interests and it's in their their interests and our interests that they develop immediately on the basis of renewable energy. New renewables are cheaper than new coal-fired power. They are more decentralised. They are cleaner they're more easily accessible to um, poorer communities that are remote communities so
1: we're speaking to Thea Ormerod she's the uh, chairperson of ARC which means the Australian response to climate change and this group represents quite a number of religious groups but um, Thea uh, I think it's sort of maybe just a stereotype, but a lot of people think that religious people, as it were, are sort of conservative. And the Pope's message is so radical. It's a marvellous book to read, listeners. If you want to get to see. Si, it's online, and it is really quite an interesting, scientific, sort of practical, frank document. Um, but also the Islamic Declaration was very frank and very out there. And also, I just read... Today, I found a speech by the Dalai Lama, and he said, look, climate change is a problem which humans created. We are relying on praying to God or to Buddha. And uh, sometimes I think this is illogical. <laughs> so Dalai Lama's got that funny way of putting things. And quite true. And I think, well, maybe climate change is best left to the scientists and secular ethical groups in society. Do you think that religious people can actually play a part in such a radical
6: transformation of our system? I think if religious people began to take this more seriously and actually put their weight behind this, we would really see change. Because numerically, we're an enormous constituency, even in Australia, which is relatively secular. um, We could make a real difference politically. And I think more and more of us are actually getting behind action on climate um, a lot of us are really excited about Ladato Sea and also excited about the Islamic Declaration and the Rabbinic Declaration. Um, there are other major Buddhist statements, so uh, I think it's spreading. I think um, you'll find that at the People's Climate March at the end of November, there'll be a very large constituency on the streets. So politicians, watch out, because. We are really gaining momentum in the faith communities. More and more of us are signing on to petitions, participating in major demonstrations. Um, This is no longer something to be whispered about. You know, Pope Francis is actually proclaimed this from the rooftops and I think a lot of us are uh, cheering him on mm-hmm. well what about divestment um, how far have the many
1: religious bodies gone to show the fossil for companies that they don't want to be involved
6: yes um, the divestment movement has really captured the imagination of re- religious institutions in Australia so the Anglican General Synod, many Anglican dioceses, the Uniting Church Uh, because it resonates so well with the idea of acting ethically in the sphere where you have some capacity to do something. So um, about a quarter of institutions worldwide that have divested from fossil fuels have been faith-based organisations. Including the World
1: Council of Churches. Okay. Well, look. The last question is: i Last week there was a vigil. Uh, you mentioned fracking before, and this was a, for a farmer who had fought long and hard against coal seam gas drilling in his on his land. And there was a YouTube video of him and he'd run out of water, and uh, he took his own life. People gathered outside Origin Energy and there was a minister there also, but also a climate drama group dressed as angels who sort of dramatised the feeling of sympathy and sadness and seriousness of this. And I think there are a lot of activists like that farmer. Or people who lock onto machinery to stop the forest being bulldozed or who have lost all their trust in the system that, you know, we think you just have to take this to your MP, you have courts that will vindicate you. But system seems to have broken down in so far as it can't seem to stop the fossil fuels um, being exploited and a lot of things, maybe people are feeling morally drained, exhausted and I wondered what can the different church communities do to sustain them and contain the despair because I think I think of the churches as being that very cohesive co- communities who do care about each other and about people who've, who are in, in trouble. So what what um, rituals or no you tell me what do you think they could do
6: it was very sad the way his fight ended Um, I think uh, us in faith constituencies have got uh, together with indigenous communities and um, with others to pray about this issue at different times we could do more of that Um, I think we have we don't have um, any kind of monopoly on hope but I hope that we, we with a sort of faith that ultimately there is a an all powerful God that is going to make sure that justice prevails I hope that could be a source of strength for the rest of, of the world because I mean if you were to look at this issue really in a hard clinical way it would be easy to despair and I'm hoping that we in the faith communities are able to offer a, a kind of depth of faith that could be shared with with other people
1: yeah Thank you very much. So that was Thea Ormerod who represents the organisation called Australian Response to—no, sorry, Australian Religious Response to Climate Change.
2: And that brings us to the end of the Beyond Zero Emissions show for this episode. And thanks again once uh, to our wonderful production team.